Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to be talking to one of my friends from Florida, a longtime pro-life activist who has an incredibly unique story in the pro-life movement. Just to give you an idea of how unique his story is, he spends all of his time outside a single abortion clinic in Orlando, Florida, and his work has been used to save more than 2,000 babies. His story is, is really just quite staggering. His name is John Barrows, and he has felt called to go outside an abortion clinic and call out to the women who are entering that abortion clinic. He sees incredible things happen, and he also sees incredibly uh, dark things take place. I don't want to get into too many of the details because, of course, uh, John will be telling us all about uh, what he experiences in front of that abortion clinic in just a moment. But I just wanted to uh, uh, describe a couple of the experiences I've had in front of that same abortion clinic. Most of you probably know that I work full-time for a Canadian pro-life organization called the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. And each February, we take students from Canada down to Florida for two weeks and, and we go on campus and we do outreach with abortion victim photography. We engage students uh, in, in conversation on abortion and we see them change their minds. We see them cancel their abortions. We get to see these incredible things happening. And of course, Canadian students who are on spring break uh, from their own education are more than happy to spend it in Florida. And at the same time, you know, they get a full crash course in pro-life apologetics and, and what it looks like to be on the front lines of the abortion wars. And so what we try to do each year is, is take them uh, to meet John Barrows out in front of his abortion clinic so they can also see what it's like to stand in front of an abortion clinic, what it's like to see heavily pregnant women walk inside and to feel that extreme urgency. You know, being outside an abortion clinic, of course, is an 11th hour ministry, we call it. And you literally have many times only a few moments to call out to them, to offer them help, to beg them to change their mind. And every time we're there, we see babies get saved. We see women cancel their abortions. And we, of course, see many women who do not change their mind. It's one of the most emotional things I think you can experience. It's a real roller coaster when you're being there. Um, you know, just the overwhelming joy at seeing somebody cancel their abortions. But then just the, the absolute sense of helplessness you get when you see somebody walk into an abortion clinic. You know that while you're outside... Her baby is being dismembered inside, and there's nothing you can do uh, to stop her. So I really wanted to just have John uh, Barrows on the podcast, on the show, to discuss his experiences so that all of you can get a better idea of what it's like uh, to be out in front of an abortion clinic, what it's like um, to call out to women in the last moments before they make that fateful decision, and so that you can hopefully share in that experience a little bit and get an idea of what this portion of the pro-life movement is all about. So here's my conversation with John Barrows. My first question would be the question I ask everybody who's involved in the pro-life movement or fighting abortion in any way full-time, which is, when did you first become aware of abortion, and when did abortion first become real to you? Uh... Abortion first became real to me about 15 years ago when my pastor brought me down to the abortion clinic that I now serve in front of. This is uh, your uh, pastor, R.C. Sproul? No, this was uh, my pastor, Jim Fitzgerald. 
Okay. Um, and he brought me down, and I actually didn't even want to come. But he uh, kind of bribed me. He said, hey, I'll buy you a cigar if you go. And I, <laughs> so I went, and I hated it. I hated every minute of being here. And uh, um, But then I just kept coming on Saturdays when I could with him and all of that kind of thing. And then uh never dreamt that I would end up being here now for uh, nine years all day long, every day. Um, serving at this place that I hated then and I still hate today. So walk people through that. Uh, You're in front of an abortion clinic in Orlando, Florida, uh, six days a week, all day long. uh, And you started off going there uh, with one one of your pastors uh, just to do a bit of a bit of sidewalk uh, counseling and reaching out. What, how did you get this uh, transition from going on Saturdays, being a part-time volunteer to somebody who's dedicated full time to actually fighting abortion, but specifically in front of this one clinic, because you've told me before, I remember asking you once how you felt called to the pro-life movement. And you said, I wasn't called to the pro-life movement. I was called to a hundred feet of sidewalk. Um, so like, tell, tell that story. How did you get from a, a Saturday volunteer to somebody who's been out in front of the same clinic for almost a decade now, every day? Um, well, I had some really bad health issues. I had uh, I got cancer, and they told me I had six months to live, and that was a real wake-up call. And then uh, I was able to beat that. can't go into all the stuff. It would take forever, but able to beat that, and then ended up with a couple of brain aneurysms and had some brain surgeries. And so when I was through all that, I was, uh, I was pretty much, uh, you know, brought down to nothing. And I came down to the abortion clinic because I had seen God work there before. And I sat on the wall here, and a young lady came walking out up. I asked her if I could talk to her, and she sat there with me, and we talked about an hour, hour and a half, and then uh, she ended up choosing life. Uh, And uh, I had this overwhelming feeling that I should be here, and I just said, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, take care of my family. And I've been here for, I'm in my ninth year now. So how, how old are you now? I'm 64. And you've been in front of the clinic for it's it's six days a week. And you when do when do you show? Give us an idea of what what your average day looks like in front of the abortion clinic there. Okay, it's not six days a week any longer. It's uh, it's five. Um, I can't do that anymore. And I have uh, uh, a friend named Doug that comes here on Saturdays from our church. So okay, uh, he and so our church handles. Uh, you know, our church is here every hour this place is open. So what does your average day look like? Well, I arrive between uh, 7.30 and 8 o'clock, and then I get everything uh, set up, and then the people start arriving, and I hand them uh, some brochures, the In the Womb track from uh, Ray Comfort at Living Waters. And uh, the uh, brochure for a pregnancy center that um, is close by, 10 minutes from here, named Choices. And uh, that's all I offer the people as far as paperwork goes. But I offer them that uh, 
that we will take care of them, meaning my church, St. Andrew's Chapel, that we will take care of whatever it is that they need, whatever hurdle they think they have to overcome uh, to keep their babies. And so when you started um, this ministry, going out there uh, all week, when when did your church step up and say, we will support you 100% in this ministry? Because I know when you started, you were just somebody who felt called to be outside this clinic, uh, speaking to the women who were going into that clinic. But at some point, um, your church stepped up and said, you can offer these women whatever it takes to cancel their abortion. And I still remember very vividly the first time I saw you in church uh, when we were out in Florida doing pro-life activism and we went to your church on Sunday, um, seeing you in a in a pew full of mothers and babies. Um, that was that was quite something to see. So how, how did your church become such an important part of what you do? Well, actually, the church that I was at um, uh, changed pastors, and the pastor there, he didn't like what I do. And um, actually, R.C. Sproul um, asked me to come over, and I went over there, over to St. and met with the elders and and R.C. and Pastor Burke and Pastor Kevin and now Pastor Don. And and uh, I just moved over there. And R.C. was the first one that uh, said, you know, John, whatever you tell them, we will we will do. And uh, Pastor Burke has uh, followed along with that. In fact, all of our pastors and elders follow along with that since the passing of R.C., so you, I remember you telling me about a meeting that you had um, with R.C. Sproul and others when you were explaining your ministry to them. What was that meeting like? Oh, that was, looking back, it was funny, but it was nerve-wracking at the time. Um, uh, they asked me to come to a session meeting with all the elders and pastors and explain what the ministry is. Uh, but they had a policy of, of having you just Put everything you wanted to say on one sheet of paper, uh, and uh, I went home and I thought, how can I possibly speak of what goes on here on one sheet of paper? And then I had an idea that I would put the pictures of nine moms and some dads and the babies and what God had done here for them in their lives, and without any writing, just the pictures, nine of them, and I. Uh, I passed out the paper, and everybody says, what is this? And I told them what I just told you, that I would tell the story. If they just pick one, the story of what happened with them. And and so uh, one of the guys pointed at a picture, and I explained what God did in their lives to uh, uh, bring them to keeping their babies, and several of them coming to Christ as well. And... Uh, and then another guy pointed at another one, and then I, I said, I know you guys have a, this is a big church, you have a lot of business to do, uh, but that's what I do. And then R.C. looked at me and said, John, I want to hear all of them. So right. I told all the stories. I told all the stories, and the guys were excited, and uh, it's been an exciting thing for our church, not just me, but uh, for everybody in our church as well. So how many babies have been saved from that clinic since this ministry began? You know, I, I don't believe in counting. Um, I mean, I post on Facebook. It's It's been pretty steady for um, 
for all nine years that it between 20 and 30 girls a month uh, choosing life here and getting the help they need and keeping their babies. And, um, you know, that comes to over 2,000. Um, right. But I, I don't count them because it's not me that does it anyway. I mean, I, I don't have the power to, to turn a, a heart that is dead set on uh, on ending their baby's life. I, I do not have that power. But when I preach here, it's God uses his word to literally uh, plow up some very hard ground and uh, open people's eyes, uh, and uh, they choose life. So when you started coming to the clinic, how did you figure out what to say? I, I've Now, as some of our listeners might know, I've been out um, in front of the clinic with you uh, quite a few different times. I've seen many, many women decide against abortion. I think the best day that I've ever seen when I was out with you. And of course, just um, our pro-life organization is in Florida uh, once a year to do work on campuses. And so we always come uh, try, come out and see uh, and and see how your ministry is doing as well. But I think we, we saw four babies in, in one day get saved. But how did you figure out exactly what worked? Um, because now you have sort of a, a system of when you offer help, when you begin preaching so that they can hear you in the waiting room, um, I remember at one point the waiting room was full um, and you'd spoken through your bullhorn quite a bit. And then you said, now it's time to sing because um, the speaking didn't bring bring anybody out. Sometimes singing helps. And I think we were in the second or third verse of Amazing Grace when one of the women who had rejected the help and ignored the words, it was that that hymn that finally brought her brought her outside. How did you uh, how did you sort of develop is probably the wrong word, but but begin um uh, figuring out how exactly you were going to approach the women who were going into this clinic. Well, there is no real formula. The funny each of these girls, each of these ladies, um, they have their own story. They have their own history of where they're coming from. And uh, it's, it's, the main thing is to let them know that you love them and that you're there for them. And then uh, the main thing that brings them around is uh, God's Word. In Romans 1, it tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And it's God's Word that, that is the power here. It's, uh, there's no reasoning. Reasoning does not do any good. I, I could never claim that I said forever. It's always God using His Word. To open hearts and and eyes and and minds. I mean, that's that's the only thing it is. He promises to work through His Word. He tells us that it's His power. Why would I even try to use anything else? So that first time you were sitting on the wall outside the, the clinic, and, and and just so that people can visualize it, you have uh, the Orlando uh, Women's Health Clinic. It has a flagpole in the front yard. And then there's a, a steep driveway going alongside the clinic. Um, um, and when the women park at the back and come up that driveway, there's a, a wall on one side of it where, where many people sit. And I've heard you refer to that driveway as the Valley of Decision because you have an opportunity to talk to the people as they come up the driveway before they go down the sidewalk and then down the walk to the front door uh, of the clinic. And so when did you realize as you were out front that the work was being blessed and that people were canceling their abortions? 
Uh, I for those of you who don't follow you on Facebook, um, if you want to read both about the you know the darkest places in the abortion industry, but also uh, be encouraged that. Uh, lives are being saved every day. Um, your posts are a great place to look for that. When did you realize that that many women were were going to change their mind and that this work that you were doing was being blessed? Uh, by the fruit, by watching God turn their hearts. I mean, that, it's as simple as that. One of the questions I, I often have to pro-life activists, because I know that um, a pro-life work, has has very hard aspects to it but i think you've said before that you're reminded when some of the young people that we have with us come to your clinic that it really reminds you of just how dark the place that you work at is um because a lot of people the idea that a baby is being pulled apart you know 15 feet away from them is just it's really difficult to psychologically handle and i don't think that should be something um that is easy to handle how do you, how how do you cope with the fact that that the place that you work is such a, a such a dark dark place? Well, the way I cope with it is, I've built some pretty good walls in uh, around my heart because it is. I mean, there's you know twenty babies a day getting killed here. I mean, it's you know twenty to thirty a day getting killed here, and then. I mean, it's it's very difficult. Um, so you build these walls of protection around yourself. Right. And, uh, I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, that and prayer. But as you refer to the kids coming here that you guys bring down, it, it often does uh, um, open my eyes to how horrible it is because I've, I've watched them break down. And I watch them start, you know, literally coming apart some of the, some of the kids that come down here when they're standing here in fresh realization of what's going on here and it's uh it's it's hard to watch it's hard to see and uh but yeah over time i've been able to uh i don't know build sometimes those walls come crashing down when it's uh particularly uh i don't know a particularly sad situation right you've actually developed a relationship with a lot of the clinic workers over the years and i remember you telling me one story that i'd like you to tell our listeners about actually having thanksgiving in the abortion clinic yeah one day i was here it was the wednesday before thanksgiving and uh i was here with some reformation bible college kids and uh and they got done real early and um, I said goodbye to the kids, and but I had this overwhelming feeling to stay. So I stayed on the uh, and sat on the wall, and I was praying. And then the lady that runs these places uh, hollered up the driveway and said, "John, come here." And I said, "No, I don't. I've had enough fighting for now. I don't want to fight anymore." And she goes, "No, come here. It's Thanksgiving." And so I walked down. I didn't know what in the world was going on, and um. I went down and uh uh she grabbed my elbow like we were walking down an aisle at a wedding or something and and she uh brought me to the back door and the a guy in there came out the door and frisked me and then they brought me in and then the workers were serving me up a plate of turkey and food and stuff and 
uh, they were thanking me for being here and, uh, you know, I didn't even understand all of it, but, uh, I still don't, but, um, but at any rate, then the abortionist came out and at the, ta- the table next to me and we were able to talk and we were able to, uh, you know, um, I was able to warn them all to get out and, uh, you know, because of what, what the sin is that they're doing, told them I loved them all, that they were caught up in a machine that, uh, is extremely wicked and evil. And, um, anyway, uh, at the end of all that, I came out, went outside and said, I guess we go back at this again on Friday. And, uh, they said, yeah, they thanked me again for being here all the years. And, and then, uh, I came out, and then a couple weeks later, I noticed some personnel changes, and I asked one of the ladies, I said, where is so-and-so, and how come so-and-so is over here now? And they, she said, nobody told you, John? And I said, tell me what? And she said, after you uh, uh, gave that talk at Thanksgiving, uh, half of the people quit, and... Uh, um, we aren't able to run both of them now. And, uh, so the other one is shut down and it, they turned it into a medical marijuana, uh, building now. Okay. But, yeah. They, they had me in for Christmas too. I just had a stroke, um, a couple of weeks ago and my left foot is, is dead right now, but when I came back, they were literally clapping, coming over and hugging me, thanking me, telling me they were the abortion thinking of workers. me. Though. Like the abortion clinic workers that. were. Yeah. Wow. Can you explain that yeah. that cognitive dissonance? Like they thanking you for being there, when essentially uh, your presence there is used to deny them twenty to thirty customers a month. Yeah, well, um, the individual workers here, I don't think they care about that. You know, I don't think they care if the owners of this place are losing any customers. Um, but, uh, I don't know. You know, they, I asked them all, I said, you know, I tell you every day you're going to hell and that you need to repent and turn from this place. I go, I don't understand, uh, you know, why you guys uh, tell me you love me? And uh, they said, because we know you care. We know that you love us. And that's basically the the story between me and the workers. But, yeah, they're, uh, it's tough. I've been able to see and help a lot of them uh, get out of this place over the years. How about that one, the one elderly abortionist that you frequently interacted with? And his name escapes me now, but one of the last times I was uh, at the clinic, it's funny, I call it your clinic, even though you're out there trying to prevent the clinic from operating every day. Um, The elderly abortionist who's actually uh, promised to keep doing abortions until he dies, I know he's spoken very roughly to uh, some young families that have come out to help you with your work before. What have your interactions with him been like? Is that Prendergrass? Do I have that right? No, that's that's the owner. You're talking about Randall Whitney. That's right, Randall. Randall, Whitney. Randall Whitney lost his license, and um, so he doesn't work here anymore. And uh, but it, I, I shared the gospel with him, and uh, 
at that Thanksgiving deal, actually. And I spoke with him uh, on other several occasions, and I told him that if he repented of his sin and turned to Christ, that uh, even what he's done, that God would forgive him. And he said, John, that's a problem for me. I, I believe there's more than one way. And I said, Randall, that is a problem. In fact, that is the problem. <laughs> but I I haven't been able to speak to him since, but he said he was going to come to St. Andrews. Okay. So just to give people an idea of what an abortion clinic is actually like, because I think that, and and I know you've said this before too, the reason so many Christians and even people who are pro-life are apathetic is because they never really try and conceptualize what an abortion clinic is and what is done at an abortion clinic. And some of the scenes that you described as normal um, for an abortion clinic are things that um, would absolutely horrify other people. When you say you've got these walls built up, um, I know what you mean. When you work full-time on the pro-life movement, you can't actually allow yourself to fully conceptualize what abortion is every day. Um, I, I don't think any human mind can take the weight of that many murdered children. It's just not something that um, that we're outfitted to do. And so just like a surgeon, um, you know, as doesn't lose it every time they see something horrible and gory. Um, a pro-lifer figures out how to do their work effectively without emotionally breaking down um, every time they're faced with the awful reality of what it is that we're fighting. But I remember you you just even describing how hard it was to see um, women who were there for late-term abortions come out and march around the parking lot to rap music so that they could be dilated enough for their babies to be removed. Yeah, it's tough, you know. On Wednesdays here, they uh, they do their labor and delivery abortions. They begin them. They give a shot through the lady's abdomen uh, on girls up to 24 weeks uh, to try and stop the baby's heart. Then they put laminara sticks in their cervix to cause that, their cervix to start loosening up. Then they put them into give them drugs to put them into labor, and then they uh, go home. And then the next morning they come back with pillows and blankets and all that stuff, and um, and then they get more drugs to put them into a deeper labor, and then sometimes they'll march them around in the back parking lot, uh, and uh, you know to try and hurry up the labor, and uh, you know it's pretty tough uh, to watch all that going on. One of the things that, that that's been debated recently have have um, have you ever seen an abortion that's been that's begun be successfully reversed? Seen what successfully reversed? An abortion that was in process, especially one of the abortions that takes several days, successfully reversed. Uh, not the labor and delivery ones. They, I believe, it's always right. Uh, the it's always the right thing uh, to do the right thing. So sometimes you'll you'll get them to repent in the second day of labor, and go to the hospital. But even the nurse over there has called from the hospital has called me and said that uh, um, that John, they're very good at killing these babies. These babies are dead that you're sending these people over to. Right. When you're talking to somebody who's gone through all of that, 
Uh, when you're talking to a woman who's been there and is in bad circumstances, I remember one instance um, when I was there uh, with you, the woman was in an abusive relationship. How do you respond to all the various circumstances they present you with? Because everybody ends up at the clinic for a different reason. Yeah, well, you just, you know, I've got a lot of helpers. The Choices has a, uh, has a lot of uh, avenues that people can go down that are under any circumstance from, you know, abusive relationships to whatever. I've taken girls all the way to Tennessee before to get to safe houses to get away from the kind of guys that uh, aren't too excited about what them choosing life. And um, it, it depends on the individual person. It depends on uh, exactly what they need. And so far, we've been able to find a way to help each and every one that has chosen life. I mean, I don't believe that God is going to have somebody choose life and then not have a way of escape from their situation. So how do you manage to deal with angry boyfriends or angry husbands or just angry men who are taking the women to the clinic to have an abortion? Because it's not just true for the clinic you're in front of. If anybody who stands outside any abortion clinic for any significant length of time will see boyfriends pulling their girlfriends in, sometimes pushing, um, you get a really, really interesting front row seat to what the woman's right to choose really is all about and how often it is men making the decision because they want to escape their responsibility. Well, number one, if I see that situation where somebody uh, doesn't uh, want one and somebody's pressuring them to do it, believe it or not, I have the phone numbers of the workers in here and I'll let them know who they are and then they will well not do the abortion. Wow. Uh, other than that, uh, you know, these workers have helped me get girls out of here and leave the guys to. Yeah. Do you ever have to face violence from the guys that show up at the clinics? No, all these years of, uh, God has protected me from, any guys or anybody that would come after me to harm me physically. So there's been threats, but nobody's ever followed through. Right. One of the, the one of the things that I think is really important for people to hear is you've mentioned that you see 20 to 30 babies saved uh, per month. Are there any stories that have particularly impacted you um, that you could tell us? Um. I mean, there's so many. I um, <laughs> there was one that's pretty crazy, really. I mean, there was a girl that showed up here one day and pulled up in a taxi and pulled down the street just a little bit. And she got out of her car and she had, like, her dress and her mannerisms and everything was like a, a 1950s movie star or something. And uh, she came walking over, and I asked her if I could talk to her, and she came up, and we started talking, and she had started saying she was a Muslim, and that uh, she said it was the 40th day, and she had to uh, have her abortion. And I said, what is a 40th day? And there's some sect in Islam that believes that a baby is not a um, a baby until 40 days after conception. And that uh, then it, the angel Gabriel blows a horn and brings life to the fetus. Okay. And so I kept talking to her, and I'm saying, 
what in the world? I said, I, I've never heard that. And I said, uh, well, we started talking. I was, you know, I started sharing scripture with her because Muslims will accept uh, the Old Testament and they will, they believe that Jesus is a prophet. So they don't believe he's God. But you know, you, I just worked with what we had and kept sharing the gospel with her and uh we talked again for like an hour and then she started crying and uh and uh you know I said can I pray for you and she said sure and I put my hand on her shoulder and began to pray for her and then when we were done uh you know I sat down and some of the scriptures we had covered were like um you know God hates the hands that shed innocent blood and Proverbs 6 and shared about uh, uh, Galatians 6, about be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever you sow, you're going to reap. And uh, anyway, she, after the prayers, she began cr crying pretty hard, but then she jumped up and ran in the sidewalk in front of the place to go inside and said, I'm sorry, John, I'm sorry, I have to do this, it's the 40th day. And she went in, and then a uh, a friend of mine was driving down the street, and she pulled over, and she said, "What's going on, John?" And I, I told her, and uh, and then she, we just sat here to pray. And then about twenty minutes later, out comes this girl with a big smile on her face, and she says, "John," uh, she says, "I jumped up and I said, you're not going to do this.'" And she said, "No, I'm not." And she goes, "But you can't touch me. Only my husband is allowed to touch me, you know, because I had prayed touching her shoulder." Right. And. Uh, and uh, she said, uh, she came over and sat down, and she's trying to get her new airline flight, uh, get checked out of her hotel and all that. And it turns out she had told her husband in Bahrain that she was going to go visit relatives in Indonesia. And then she flew to Indonesia, but then she got on another plane and flew here and Dropped, went by her hotel, dropped off her luggage, and then came right here. And um, so I asked her, I said, young lady, what uh, what was it that uh, that got you? And she said, that verse you said about reaping what you sow, I was sitting in there filling out the papers, and I thought, what shame would I bring upon my family, upon my husband? If I was to die in here on this table in this awful place, <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, she ended up flying home. I know I'll never be able to get a hold of her or anything because, of course, she's not able to tell anybody any of this stuff. And but it was uh, that was quite a story. I told her I said, you know, I'm so sorry that uh, uh, you flew halfway around the world come to this place and I was the best thing you got to see <laughs> and she was she was just I, I do not know how to explain that one it was just so cool I mean I, I I just couldn't believe it that God cared about this lady enough over there a Muslim lady uh that he would stop her here in front of this place that of all the clinics she went to she ended up going to the clinic you're in front of and bumping into you first yeah, and they because these guys advertise a lot, probably more than anybody. But um, we get a lot of people from other countries here. So, 
Are there any of the children that have been saved from abortion from those clinics that you're st- that are still in your life? I remember the very first time. Oh yeah. Yeah, and this is this is more common I know for you because I see your pictures than for other people because like I've gotten to hold one baby, um, and their mother, his mother, sorry, had canceled an abortion after seeing, um, one of our displays. But it's not as if I can regularly, um, you know, see children that have been saved by pro life work. That's not the same for you, is it? No, I could see a lot of them. I do not get involved in their lives too much. I mean, I can't. You know, I'm a guy. Um, but I have ladies, literally, that follow up. I just had another uh, girl text me. I just posted it last night about a, uh, um, that she was thanking for uh, for being here, for me being here, and uh, that she had come out during the preaching, and she sent a picture of her little girl. Um, and it's, you know, it's awesome. It's just, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, I guess the last question I'd ask you is just how would you describe being in front of an abortion clinic every day for those who find the very idea impossible to grasp? Um... Well, you see, there's there's something different. I have I have um, I have a lot of people that come when they can to do this, um, um, but myself, I think I've been called here in a special way because I can't imagine not being here. When I was in the hospital uh, after having that stroke, I was like, man, I gotta get down there. I mean, there's just this thing. I don't know how to explain it that. I absolutely need to be here and can't imagine not being here. It, it's not like, uh, uh, you know, it's not the same as when I could only come every once in a while or whatever. It's a, it's kind of a different thing. Right. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your story with us. Well, thank you, sir. God bless you for all you guys do up there. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with John Barros, who stands outside an abortion clinic five days a week in Orlando, Florida, and gets to see the brightest light in the darkest darkness. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and head over to LifeSightNews.com for more news, for more commentaries, and if you want to listen to any of the past episodes uh, of this podcast, we've interviewed intellectuals, pro-life, pro-family warriors. If you want to know what's going on in the culture and if you want to know the stories of the men and the women who are fighting so hard to preserve our culture and rebuild a culture of life, please do check out past episodes of The Van Maren Show. Thank you so much for listening this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.